Again, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word when you find your place. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Reading the word, you may be seated. If I were to ask you, what does it mean to have joy, could you answer me? Could you describe to me the difference between joy and, say, happiness? There is a difference. Happiness is circumstantial. Amen. Joy is in the Lord. Happiness is indeed circumstantial. Joy comes from God. When we talk about joy and we talk about this, this steadfastness, uh, other uh, translations use the word endurance, um, to, to have this means that, that we have to have it placed not in things that are circumstantial around us. You know, Brother Clay rightly pointed out this morning that there's a lot of people down south that are suffering right now. And we have loved ones down in Tampa and other places that we're worried about. Things are going on. This They were describing this hurricane as the worst hurricane in recorded history. Guess what? This hurricane's got two little kids on the way as well. No, it's not over. The hurricane season is actually just beginning. So we, we could have, if you imagine being down there, you've worked your whole life and you've got this nice house and nice car and all the possessions you've accumulated from decades of work. It's gone. Imagine that. It's just gone. Now, the people there are instructed by James here to have joy. He doesn't say you've got to be happy about it, but he says you've got to have joy. Let me go into what happiness is. I want you to imagine that you know, we've all, I, I hope at one point in time, if you're a, for the adults here, you, you've had that moment in your life where you've been able to go and purchase a new car or something really nice like that. And you sit in it, you get that new car smell, and it makes you feel good. And you're so happy that when you get that car until that first bill comes, of course. But you, you, you drive, drive it around, and it's nice and clean. And every time you get out, you do that full circle walk at the grocery store, make sure nobody dinged up your car, don't have no scratches or, or dent marks. And it feels good for a while. And what, what happens? A month or two down the road, it's, it still feels good, but it doesn't have that new smell. And maybe there's a little dings that have come in, or it's a little bit dirty from the weather. And all of a sudden, the happiness fades a little bit. You, don't, you still don't have that quite euphoric happiness feeling that you had. And as Brother David rightly pointed out, it's circumstantial. We could be happy about something one day and not so happy about that the next day. You know, last year at this time, most of us Cubs fans were real happy because we were the best team in baseball. And we may not even make the playoffs this year. So our happiness goes up and goes down, just, just like that. Right. But the reality is joy, joy that is placed in God, never goes up or down. For it is always up. It is always constant. It is always solid where it belongs. I want us to understand a little bit about James before we dive into here. Uh, many will, will uh, reference James as kind of the Solomon of the New Testament. He, his, his book... Uh, the epistle of James here is really the Proverbs of the New Testament. It, it comes off very similar with, with a lot of wisdom sayings. 
um, that, that, that we read here. It reads very different from most of the other epistles from Paul and John and Peter. And James is known as James the Just, but, but he is not just a brother like you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. He is literally the brother of Jesus. I want you to imagine growing up in his house. You know, you're sitting at the dining room table and your big brother, he literally could do no wrong. He was sinless. He's the Messiah. He is God himself. And you are his little brother. And you, you're watching him grow up. And, and we know from Scripture that, that James and the other brothers, they didn't always have a high view of Jesus. You know, they, they didn't right away believe that he was the Messiah. We, we see in one moment where, where Jesus waits to go to the, uh, the temple for the Passover. They're like, well, you should go. You're, you're doing all these wonderful things. You should go and be seen and make yourself known. You know, we see evidently at that point in time, it's not till the resurrection do his brothers start to believe in him. And we understand that that passage that says a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown, especially not in his own house. And so we have, have James, who is the, the, the kid brother. He's known as James the Just. He was a very right, righteous man. He was uh, very fond of his Jewish upbringing. Later on, he would be known as the pastor or the bishop of Jerusalem. When we see Paul and Peter and everyone else flee Jerusalem when everything's coming down, the persecution from Rome is there, there is, there is one of the apostles who stays, and that is James, the one who writes this letter. So understand the authority that he writes with. He knows what it means to go through trials. And I know many of us today, especially recently, we have gone through trials. Amen? Have you gone through trials? The, the reason we need to understand it and look at, at these trials here is because we need to know how to have joy during these trials. We need to listen to what James says. Because James is speaking on, on God's behalf in this. We can look down, as I said, uh, Hurricane Irma. And let's not for, forget about Houston and what's going on there. You know, there's the large parts of Houston are still underwater. Homes are gone. Businesses are ruined. You know, whole livelihoods, generations of wealth just erased. But let's not forget we had an earthquake down in Mexico. A lot of times we think of Mexico like, oh, maybe this was Mexico City, really far. This was about 15 miles from Los Angeles. This was not that far from the United States. An 8.0 earthquake, the largest in 100 years. This was massive. To give you an idea of, of the power of this earthquake, when you have an earthquake at the, the top of the surface, it usually does much more damage than the ones that are deeper down because much of the damage happens underground that we don't see. This earthquake resonated 50 miles under the earth and has still cost many lives and just ruined entire towns. We are seeing devastation. If you look out west, there are nine states literally on fire right now. People are working nonstop trying to put out forest fires, and they can't. And we got scientists warning us about things in outer space, meteorites and things of that nature. And it got, with this earthquake, it brought up the top. What happened if this earthquake would have been about 200 miles north? There's this place called Yellowstone Park. That's the largest active volcano in the world. One earthquake, and we're all seeing dark for the rest of our lives. You know, there, there are real serious cataclysmic things going on in the world. And if you watch the news, it says you should be afraid, you should be terrified. But God says, no, you should have joy in this moment. And you and I, if we're honest, we're not living in Florida. Our loved ones may be living in Florida or Texas or thereabouts, and, and we ache for them what they're going through. But the hurricane's really not doing damage here. The fires haven't touched us yet. The earthquakes haven't 
devastated Illinois. Some of our you know, lawmakers and tax, taxes devastate Illinois. That's a subject for another day. But the reality, we haven't suffered like those that are suffering. But we are told to have joy. I know many, many of us find it hard. And I admit it is hard to have joy. I know what many of you have gone through recently. And I know what many of you have gone through at some point in your lives. I know what this church has gone through. It, is, it has been a hard time. We have gone through trials. And we haven't always gone through them with joy. Amen? It's not easy to go through things with joy. If it was easy to go through trials of life with joy, James would not be reminding you to have joy with trials. It would not need to be said. But it needs to be said. He tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or a perfect endurance. Paul oftentimes will talk about running the race of a Christian life. Running it with endurance to, to finish the race well. You, know, you ever watch marathons? And We always seem to have the, the, the runners from Kenya and Jamaica. They always seem to do really well. and they, they go through rigorous training night and day and they seem to win the race. And then there's always those those few racers, and usually they're like semi-professionals, that, that, that they finish the race, but they're like hobbling for the last three miles because they do not have the endurance to run that race. And some of those races, I give them credit, 26 miles, I, I couldn't walk that, let alone run it. You know, that, that is a, a long time, and it takes, takes a long time. But what, what James is talking about here is a, a spiritual endurance, that steadfastness, that testing of your faith. I don't think any of us, if we're honest, we would say we enjoy like having our faith tested. But it's in those moments that your faith is tested you find out what, how strong your faith really is. We'd all like to stand and say, we have, we have that faith. I think we'd all be like Peter and say, Lord, I would never deny you. I guarantee you about half of you would deny Jesus if the circumstances were presented. Would you give your life for Christ? If someone came in here Columbine style and pointed a gun at your head and said, Deny Christ and you shall live. Many of you would start thinking about your families, about your loved ones, and how you're not going to be able to provide and protect for them. Many of you would deny him. We don't honestly know until we're put through that trial. And I pray we never put through that trial. The reality is that those trials that we go through in life, and sometimes those trials are loneliness. Or things of that effect, that that the ones that we used to love are no longer here. Or it's, you know, there's infighting. Somebody said something and it hurt my feelings. And now I want to hold a grudge. Or I heard somebody gossiping about this person. And all of a sudden, instead of standing up and doing what is right, you're fighting amongst each other. Those are trials. Are we going to do what God's word says? Are we going to do the right thing? Or are we going to be like the world? You know what the world would do. What will Christ and his church do? I want you to understand that God is not going to ask us to stand through anything that he hasn't been through himself. Jesus Christ was tested, amen? You, you'll remember the story. In the wilderness, 40 days. Now, I want you to think, you don't have to raise your hands or anything. What's the longest you've ever fasted from anything? Doesn't have to be food. Now, I want you to think about fasting for 40 days. Now, I'm one, I have a medical condition known as epilepsy. You know, my doctors do not recommend that I fast from food. Go to mortar in eight hours, I'm risking having a seizure. It's dangerous for me. So there's been times where instead of just giving up food, I'll give up the thing I enjoy most, which is meat. 
And so I, I went about two weeks one time without, without eating any meat, and that was hard. Probably the hardest day is, I can, I can say it because she's down in the nursery. My, my wife woke up one day and she wanted to make breakfast, so she started cooking eggs and bacon. And that, that smell of bacon went through the house. And I'm like, oh, I gotta have some bacon. <laughs> that was the hardest day of the fast. So I want you to understand what Jesus went through. Jesus fasted from food and water for 40 days. At day 22, your body will start shutting down and turn on itself. It will start eating your own organs and muscle tissue. This is not an easy fast. This is not one I recommend everyone doing. And please don't, don't feel if you try to do this fast and find yourself not able to go more than three, four days, that somehow your faith is weak. This is the hardest of all fasts. The reality that the fast that, that we see in the Old Testament, and you see many religions partaking around the world, is a fast from sunup to sundown. That, that is your typical fast, where you'll not partake in food and sometimes not partake in a liquid like water until the, the sun goes down. And that is your typical fast. It, it is a way to, to uh, make your body submit to your spirit, to, to do it to honor God. That is what fasting does, is denies yourself something so that you could honor God through that. And we see Jesus do this. And of course, this Satan saw this as a great opportunity while Jesus is denying the flesh to, to go in and offer him fleshly things. And so what we see is first we see the temptation of hunger. And this is a type of lust on the body. What does he offer him? He says, Jesus, tell these stones to become bread. And this is the, the great reality we must understand. If Jesus would have told those stones to become bread, they would have become bread. There's no denying it. Jesus had that power. Now, if I were to go out and look at the stones we have out, out in the parking lot and say, become bread, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Most definitely won't happen. <laughs> I, I don't have that power, so that temptation, I'd be like, okay, Satan, you're, you're a little kooky on this one. But Jesus had that power. Jesus knew it, and more importantly, Satan knew it. He very well could have said, be bread, and he could have ate. But he, he would have failed the test. We go on, we look... He then is tempted with the pride of life. Satan tries to kill, to have Jesus kill himself by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And he, he tempts with this. He says, well, the scriptures say that you won't, um, God won't allow your, your foot to be stubbed against a stone, that you won't be allowed to hurt yourself, that the angels will be sent to protect you. He said, well, we are not to tempt our Lord, our God. We understand this. And I want you to remember this pinnacle story later. It applies to James greatly. Okay? And so th this is a temptation that he, he uses to try to, to get Jesus to have pride about his life, to, to value his life more than anything. Many of us, when, when we talk about Jesus Christ, and whether or not we would stand that test of martyrdom, whether or not we could go to another country and proclaim the gospel and even give up our own lives... It's our own lives that we often struggle with. Would I be willing to die for Christ? Would I be willing to die and leave my family behind? My church, my ministry, whatever, whatever it is you value. A day would come where Jesus would have to lay his life down. Amen? But it was not to be through Satan's temptation. Thank God that Jesus passed this test. And finally, the temptation of power and materialism. Though the one that we, we see, we often fail so much in life. Jesus is offered, ready? The entire world. 
Who's ever been offered the entire world? Not me. I've not been offered the entire world. I, I imagine it would sound very tempting. There are politicians who would love this offer. That you could be king of the world. Everyone is under your subjection. All he had to do is compromise in one area in his life. Jesus just had to bend the knee to Satan. But obviously he does not bend the knee to Satan. And neither will we. We should never bend the knee to anyone but God. People want to talk about what's right and what's wrong and making people feel good and doing what's politically correct. The reality is God and God alone is sovereign. God alone is creator of heaven and earth and God alone should be worshipped. No one else deserves worship of God. I want to remind you that you will face these temptations. James, brother of Jesus, surely faced these temptations. You know, he was the, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he was so well respected that even the Pharisees who rejected Christ respected him enough to allow him to go into the temple and worship alone. I want you to think about all your Old Testament laws and how there, there had to be priests present and, and how you had to put permission. He could only go in on certain days, on Sabbath days. But not for the brother of Jesus, James. This lone man who did, wasn't even an apostle, wasn't a disciple when Jesus went to the cross, but is later named an apostle and head over Jerusalem. He has such respect that the enemies of Christ allow him into the temple. The same temple that when Christ died, was the, the veil was torn in two. There was a great earthquake. And it is said about James that his knees became so callous from praying in the temple praying for the nation of Israel, praying for his fellow countrymen because they had denied his Lord Christ. Taking away what he meant as a brother, but denying him as God, denying their Messiah. And he longed for them to turn back to God as you and I long for our loved ones to turn back to God. Who here can be accused of having your knees so blistered and calloused from being on your knees and praying? I certainly can. You need to understand when, when James is talking about unwavering in prayer, he knows what he's talking about because he has lived it out. He's not just some man saying, you should go and do this and not willing to do it himself. He lived it out, he did it. After a while, the influence of James became so strong that, that when he would say Jesus is the Messiah, some of the Pharisees started to believe James. They started falling after Christ. And the Pharisees didn't like this very much, so they had a plan. They thought that they could convince James that to go up to the pinnacle of the temple and to preach to the crowds that they should not turn to Jesus as the Messiah because of the unrest that was starting to happen and Rome was starting to take notice. So James agreed to go up to the temple. He did not agree to deny his Lord. When they brought him up to the temple, he shouted, O righteous one in whom we are able to place great confidence, the people are led astray after Jesus, the crucified one. So declare to us, what, this, is this, what is this way, Jesus? This is the Pharisees talking to James. Obviously, this wasn't a very wise thing for them to do. And James was, was ready to take full advantage of such a wondrous opportunity as this. And so what we have with James is these words he says, why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. The streets would have been filled with, with Jewish people wanting to know if Jesus really was the Messiah. 
Obviously, the Pharisees were horrified, but the people were not. They began shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. The people believed because of James' testimony. The Pharisees, realizing their awful mistake, they made, began crying out, oh, oh, the righteous one is also an error. James is known as the righteous one. And in fact, if you study Galatians, why is, why is Peter afraid to eat with Gentiles? If you read it, it says, Peter, being afraid of James, would not eat with the Gentiles. He was afraid of what James would think. You understand? James would say, Jew of all Jews. You, you would think, he, we read Paul and his love for the Jewish people, but it is not Paul that God set up over Jerusalem. It is James. And so as, as we, we look at what happens, the retaliation of the Pharisees is horrible. It's very similar to the temptation of Christ, and I'm sure James found some irony in it. The Pharisees rushed up to the pinnacle where James was and threw him off. He died in the, in the same way that temptation was meant for Jesus. But believe it or not, God spared James. He fell off nearly 70 feet off the pinnacle of the temple and was living, still preaching Christ. That obviously did not please the Pharisees, and then they stoned him to death. That is how the brother of our Lord dies. He, he did not waver in, in all his trials. Facing death, he did not waver. So why should we waver? Which one of us will be, will be taken to a pinnacle? Even if they threw you off the pinnacle of this church, you likely would not die. It would hurt, yes. There's nobody gathering stones outside to stone you. You are free to proclaim the gospel. You're free to have faith in Christ. But what holds us back? So when James tells us to have joy, we should have joy. I want to tell you three reasons, the assurances that you have for joy. And this gets to the part where he talks about, he says, if anyone desires wisdom, they may ask of God freely. And God gives you wisdom freely. Now James does put a little asterisk on this. He says, you cannot doubt when you're asking God. Doubt is the killer of your prayers. It is a prayer killer. When we pray, we must not have any doubt. For doubt is indeed the opposite of faith. James tells us that we will be like the wave of the sea. You will be like, you may, you may be boisterous and loud. You may be like Irma coming down on Florida, ready to wreak havoc. But James says you're just tossed like one of the waves that Irma brings into the ocean. You go this way when somebody says something, and you go that way when somebody says something else. Do not expect to receive anything from God with that mindset. We need to have an unwavering faith. A faith that is not tossed to and fro because the, 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 the political powers change from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican. Your faith should not change. Your, your belief system should not change because of that. Because you're going through a trial, you should not change. Your faith should be the same. You should not be, when you're going through a trial, saying, Woe is me! Why is this happening to me? Why does it always seem to affect me? It's not just you. Everyone goes through trials. We all do. We as a church go through trials. It's not a bad thing to go through trials. Usually it means you're on the right path. Satan is trying to derail you. He realizes where your train is heading, and he doesn't like it. Because you're getting ready to get off and, and preach the gospel to someone, and he doesn't want, want you to do that, because he doesn't want souls to be saved. You should rejoice and have all joy, and let your joy be complete when you face these trials. But are we honest? Do we have all joy when we face these trials? When we see loved ones sick, do we have joy? 
When we see strife in the church, do we have joy? When we see people standing on the word of God and being persecuted for it, do we encourage them to have joy? The honest reality is most of us do not. But we should have all confidence. Have confidence when you go to the throne room of God, and that's what you're doing by prayer. You're not just uttering words. You are actually, your words go up to the throne room of God where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who intercedes on your behalf. And remember who you are. Who are you? You are a child of God. You have the right to approach your Father. We are told to be like Jesus. Did Jesus ever once have doubt in his prayer life? Once. No, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. He knew he was a child of the Most High and that if he prayed to God, God would hear him because he is his Father. That God would answer his prayers because he is his Father. And God would provide for his needs because he is his Father. How are you any different? You are a child of the Most High God. Don't let Satan give you any doubt of that. A day is coming we see the earthquakes and the fires and the hurricanes and all kinds of things. We see the wars and rumors of wars. We see what Matthew 24 speaks of, that the love of many has grown cold. What should you do then? You should have joy and look up to the heavens where your redemption is near. You should tell others that Jesus is about to return. Amen. We've fallen asleep, haven't we? We're lethargic about it. We're like, yeah, Jesus... He saved me on the cross. I accepted him. One day I got down on the altar. I'm just going to go live my life like it doesn't matter. It matters more than anything. If you lived in Houston right now, you'd realize that that is the only thing that has ever mattered in this world. The, the jobs we have, the, the things we spend our whole lives working for, it's gone. Our beloved brother, Prophet Tom, our deacon, he worked his whole life for the railroad. That is not what will be counted on the last day. He'll stand before God as a deacon and be honored for it. That is what will be remembered, the things he did for God. Not the things that were done for man. Not the possessions he had. Those have come and gone. The possessions I have will one day be gone. If I live long enough, I will die, the house will get sold, and somebody else will be there to watch it fall apart. And if I am, am blessed, and I believe I am blessed beyond measure, because I believe I will live to see the return of Christ. And I believe that home that I cherish right now will be consumed in flames, because everything will be made new. Amen? Amen? So we should have joy when we face these trials. So I want you to remember, when, when you go down on your knees, or when you pray over your meal, or whenever it is that you pray, pray as a child of God. Do not doubt Remember the, the thing of wisdom that we see here, James, and I think it's important that, that we note this. With wisdom, it is given freely. This is what I call a, a character prayer. There's many people in lives that pray for different things. The one we joke about in church is don't pray for patience because you're not just going to get patience. God doesn't, doesn't have his magic wand out saying, bippity-boppity-boo, boop, you're patient now. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. Well, what happens? You go through trials in life which you have to have patience to endure. And we've been through those. I, I can hear some of you, yeah, I've, I've been through there. I've been there, done that. I am now patient because of what I've been through, not because it just, poof, happened. Not so with wisdom. God gives it freely. 
Why, why is Solomon honored above all kings? If you look at his life, he wasn't a, a good king by, by any measure by the end of his life. He was absolutely wretched. There was idols everywhere. He would be considered one of the worst kings if he lived in America. We, we would lambast him as the president you do not want to be like. He came in with all these promises and all the blessings and all the fervor of the people, and he left us in ruins. His sons have watched his kingdom divided. But why is Solomon blessed? Because at the beginning of his reign, he was permitted to ask God one thing, anything he wanted. He could have asked for riches beyond belief. He could have asked for, for a beautiful wife. He could have asked for a thousand things. He asked for wisdom so he could rule the people rightly, justly. God gives wisdom freely. God has given it to James. He offers to give it to you. So when you go through trials, understand that what you should do is get down on your knees and pray for wisdom, and God will give it to you freely so you know how to endure that situation. And that when your faith is tested, you will be proven that, that your faith is genuine and real. So we go on the final part. And probably the best part of any assurance I can give you to any trial, trials have an end. If, you, if you're brought before a courtroom and you're on trial, you, you ran a red light or whatever it may be or something far worse, at some point, the jury's going to be out, there's going to be a verdict reached, and the trial will come to an end. We may not like the way the trial goes, and we may fail and, and be, be found guilty of being lacking faith in that trial. But the reality is that trial has an end to it. But I want, want to show you something here in Scripture the, the point where we talked about Jesus being tempted for 40 days. What happens after he passes his trial? He begins his public ministry. Amen? When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's down on his knees praying to the Father, if you will, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Jesus does not want to be crucified. No human body ever desires to go through that kind of tormenting pain. It is still unequaled in in. Uh, torment and torture to this day. But he says, not my will, but your will. He passes the test. And three days later, you have the victory. Christ is raised from the dead that we may be born again, have newness of life, and be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Amen? What about John the Baptist? Here he is. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching to the people, and all of a sudden the Pharisees show up. And they say, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I am not. Are you the prophet then? No. Are you Elijah? Or someone else from old? And he says, no. They gave him every opportunity to make himself out to be something he was not. To make himself feel more important than he was. But he did not give in. He had a singular purpose in life. He was born to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that is what he did. And then he was beheaded. That was his life. Great life, right? The ones that, that we always dream about. Ministry is hard. <coughs> With John, he found out that real ministry is very hard. There was no lavish car and boat and three-piece suit for him. He had camel's hair for his coat. But before the end, the greatest moment of his ministry, after his trial was over, what did he get to do? He got to say... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. 
greatest moment of his life. When you face trials, there's a moment where it's going to come to an end and it has a purpose. There is ministry on the other side for you that you can't even imagine. That God is preparing you to do such a great thing. And it's hard to comprehend at the time when that storm's barreling down on you. The people in Florida and the people in Texas, the people out west that are going through the fires, the people in Mexico that, that just felt the wrath of that earthquake, they can't imagine a better life beyond this. Everything's gone. But just like Job experienced, God will add it to you new. He will give it to you even better than you had before. If not in this life, in the next for sure. We will all go through various forms of trials. We will all be tested in our flesh as Jesus was. We will all be tested to, to make our life more important than it is as, as Jesus and John, John was. We'll all be tested with that power to, to, be given, to be given things if we'd only compromise just a little bit. We could have a thousand people in this church by next year if we just compromise. Are you willing to do that? Not me. That's what you want. You gotta kick me out of here. It's not gonna happen on my watch. The reality is, is we have to focus on God. Now, I, I want to get very real. the The writing of James here is is a very raw writing. It's very in your face. This is my type of author. I, I enjoy that. But I want to be very real with you guys. Over the last twenty four months, we have been through a lot as a church. I know many of us have been through. A whole lot individually. But as a church, we have been through a lot. I think there's tests that we have passed and there's tests we have failed. I think a lot of times we surely say the right things, but if we're honest, we, we really struggle with it. We, we fall into these temptations of you know the body, life, and power. At times we struggle with loving God and loving ourselves, loving each other. Oftentimes we, we will say the right things, we know what God's Word says, but when it comes time to do it, we don't want to step on toes. We, we don't want to say, brother or sister, you're sinning here. We, we need to correct this. But if we're to live as Christians, we need to do so. If your brother has wronged you, and oftentimes what I find is somebody has said something to you, and it's hurt your feelings, and you're upset, and your other brother doesn't even know that you're upset, I encourage you to go to them and say, you know what, you said this to me, it really hurt me, but you are my brother and I am compelled by the love of Christ to love you. And I forgive you. And maybe it's vice versa. That you've wronged someone else and you need to be forgiven. Go to them and say, forgive me brother. Forgive me sister. I did not mean to hurt you. I am sorry. We need to get out of our own way. We need to stop saying, you know, our feelings are more important than what God wants. Or our, our ways of how we see things going at church or in our lives are more important than how, how the things of God are to be. We need to ask God what's next. Not ourselves. We need, need to say, God, what are we to do? Not our, well, what is what, what Dylan wants or Darren or, you know, who, whoever it may be. We are not to, to look at ourselves and say, this is what I want, so this is what we're going to do. That is not honoring to God. We, we are to humble ourselves and seek God. And when we pray, pray as James tells us to pray without wavering. Pray such a faith that people would, would look and say, wow, I want to pray like that. Do you know such people? I do. I'm married to them. We need to have that kind of prayer life. And I'll be honest, sometimes when we fail the test, you know, I've been part of a few different churches in my life, and 
I've kind of noticed right reasons and wrong reasons to leave a church. And I know during the last two years, we've had some leave us. And that's always painful. Now they tell me, don't let it bother you. As pastor, it bothers me. I'm not going to lie. When, when people leave, it, it's, it, it stings a little bit. It even stings worse when they tell it. It's not you, pastor, but they won't tell you why. That stings. I'm being honest right now. There are three things here. I believe there are three reasons that it is acceptable to leave a church. I believe all other reasons are sinful, prideful, and you're giving in, allowing the church to be divided. I want to remind us that at the end of our days, that if we are indeed Christians, that we are going to spend all eternity together. So going down the street to another church is kind of like being a little kid throwing a tantrum saying, I'm not going to talk to my brother no more. He made me mad. And guess what? You're both going to have to stand before God and explain that to the Almighty. You've got to rot an iron, by the way. Just let you know. But so number one, you're moving very far, and it's not reasonable for you to attend church with the distance you're traveling. This is the most obvious. If you move to Texas or you know Arizona or something like that, I don't expect to see you every Sunday morning. I'd be grateful if you did. So you could, you could tune in. We have the sermons online, things of that nature. But that, that is a reality in our day and age. In, in the day and age where, where James is living, there was a church in Jerusalem, a church in Antioch, a church in Rome. There was not 32,000 churches in each individual city for you to, to choose from. You go on number two. If God is calling you to a mission field, and that entails us as a church sending you out, such as being a missionary or planting a church somewhere, that is God-honoring. That is something we, I long and desire to do. I would love to plant a church out in Sandwich. I'd love to send missionaries out to Africa and South America and Mexico, Australia, Europe, Asia, to tell people that Jesus is about to return, that they need to repent and accept him. Amen? That is a good and God-honoring way to do. And number three, I think it is acceptable. It is a sad state, and I've been in churches where this is the case. Leadership is an unrepentant sin. If this is the case, that leadership is not preaching the gospel, or, or leadership is sin and not willing to repent from it, then that is your, your only three exceptions for, for leaving a church. And if we're honest, all, all other ways are, are ways of sin. I want us to remind, remind ourselves that this church, our, our church that we're involved in, is part of the church. Church is not a buffet line where you go get to go in and pick and choose. Oh, I like this about church, and I like this. Oh, I don't like that. That's too green for me. Well, let's get over here to the sweets, the parts that I really enjoy. But many of us treat church that way. And say, oh, I didn't like that part. I didn't like what the pastor said, or I didn't like what he or she did. And all of a sudden, you're not willing to go there anymore. And you start distancing yourself, and there's disunity in the body. You can't have that here. I, I believe this, the church has gone through trials, and we, we are at a, a point in our lives where we're just about through the trial, and there is great ministry ahead. I believe we will be part of the last great harvest before the Lord returns. That is what my, my honest belief about our church is. But the reality is, is that we have to come together and be unified. We can't be allowing division. And we have to have that faith and belief that God is going to do this, and not doubt Doubt will kill our prayers. We can sit at the altar and pray all we want, but if, if I, I share with the central class, you know, it's kind of an upper Midwest thing. When we pray, what do we do? We get down on our knees and say, Lord, 
if you would just send more people. We add that word just all the time, don't we? As if somehow our prayers aren't good enough. As if somehow we aren't good enough to approach God and ask for prayers. I told you, you're a son or daughter of God. It is good enough. Remember who Jesus came to die for. He came to die for you. When he went to the cross, it was with you on his mind and in his heart. When, it was, when he was resurrected, when he told the apostles to go out and proclaim the gospel, he had you in mind. If the gospels, or if the apostles would refuse to take the gospels out, where would Christianity be? This church is here because someone decided to plant a church. And from that church, somebody planted a church. And it would go all the way back to the apostles. Every God-honoring church would. Really, they were obedient to God in that. And so we must be obedient and have that unity of faith. I believe our time is beyond short. We don't, we don't have time to put a 30-year plan in place. I do not believe the Lord is going to wait that long. I don't know if we have time for a 30-month plan, if I'm actually honest with you. We need to be about God's work and to be about doing it now. So we need to put aside all our, all our feelings and the things where we step on each other's toes and say, you know what, this is about Christ and His mission. And we love Him and we're going to love each other. That is what we must be about. I'm going to share, share with you something here before we close. Yesterday, as, as I was preparing this, this message, finalizing and getting it ready for today, I was actually in tears. It, it hit me like a ton of bricks. A day is coming very soon where our Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. That thought brought me joy. But I was also consumed with the fact and the reality that for some of you, I will not be able to present you as an offering to God. But I'll have to live my entire life in eternity knowing that God gave you to me. And you ended up in hell still. I can't live with that on my conscience. The time is short. If I have wronged you or this church has wronged you in any way, we are indeed sorry. There are times where we, we preach the gospel and it gets on people's toes. I won't apologize for the gospel. There are times we may not go about it or say it in the best way. For that I will apologize. But I want you to know with any, without any shadow of a doubt that God loves you. It is why he sent his son for you. It is why he has delayed so long. Because he loves you. It is why you see these storms happening. Because it is a warning to repent. For Christians, I, I say to, to look up to the heavens, your time is very near. But there are some here who do not know Christ. Who have not chosen to come down and surrender their life to him. And accept him as Lord. They have no right to cry out to the Father. Because they do not know the Son. We only have the right to come to the Father. Because we pray in the name of the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. You take all three or none at all. We must humble ourselves. And repent where we have sinned. As a church. As individuals. With our families. For you do not know how long you have. It is far shorter than you can ever imagine. I encourage you daily to be in prayer for your church, 
for your pastor, for your deacons, for everyone here. Because like the hurricanes that we're seeing down south, if you're not in a storm right now, you it's because you've either just come out of one or you're about to go into one. In just under three weeks, we'll mark one year since our dear Carla has gone home. That's a storm that is still felt deeply, especially by my brother and her daughter. I understand how deep that pain is. We need to be in prayer for them. This month is going to be very hard. We need to be in prayer for each other because one of you will one day go through what he has. And he will be there alongside you to, to help you in that. Riyadh, I've gone through things so I can help you with. I tell you, I, I had someone tell me and give me a little praise about visiting people in the hospital. I tell you, I do not visit you when you're in the hospital because I am your pastor. I do it because I am your brother and it's the right thing to do. There are many pastors who barely even make deathbed visits. Shame on them. They are to lead their flock. They are to shepherd each other. To carry one another's burdens. To lift each other up. But are we willing to do that? That means getting past all the things that have been done in the past. Actually forgiving people. We cannot seriously claim to be Christians when we have been wronged and Jesus said, if you forgive your brother, your Father in heaven will forgive you. What's the next part of the line? But if you do not forgive your brother, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. We like to just look over to that second part of it because it's not very convenient. That means we have to give of ourselves. We have to put ourselves out there and be willing to forgive others. What happened with Christ on the cross? The very men who are having him crucified are the very men he is praying for. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is reported with James after he's thrown off the, the pinnacle of the temple that he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do as they are stoning him to death. There are loved ones we have that have hurt us been there, done that. I have been called a fool for what I've done. For becoming a pastor, preaching the gospel, giving up the dream IT job, and all that. They, they call me a fool. But I will be a fool if it means they will be saved. If it means that people here will hear the gospel and repent. That is what we are to be. Count our lives as nothing but for Christ. At the end of the day, whether it's by by storms or, or, or the time of death, or, or as sin has entered in the body and death will come, let our lives count for Christ. As Pastor Barry, I listened to a sermon. And let that, that word church mean something outside on that sign. Let us be a church, a real church. Not one with fancy gimmicks and programs, but one who understands what it means in Acts, where they came together and they were of one accord. There was unity in the body. Do you think God's not able to add 3,000 people to this church as he did to, to the church in Acts? He is able, just as able to do it today as any day. But we are being tested. Will we be unified or will we be divided? Will we look the other way when our brother sins? Or we will, call, or will we call them out on it so that we may win our brother back? Understand, when, when we go before the Lord God in prayer, we must go as ones without any doubt, as brothers and sisters with strong faith, 
faith that Jesus said could move mountains. As I close, I want to want to touch on, on that passage real quick where Jesus says you can move mountains. And I'm going to close in prayer. Jesus told, told the disciples, if you have faith strong enough, you see that mountain over there? The mountain he would have been pointing to is um, the, the Herodian mountain. It was called that, and to this day it is still crumbly dirt if you were to go over there. And why was it that way? Because King Herod, he was such a pompous and arrogant man, when he rebuilt the temple, he made a pool and had it laid with gold on the outside. But there was a mountain blocking the sun when he liked to go in the pool. So being a, a foolish man, what does he do? He orders a bunch of slaves to move the mountain. Think about what Jesus is telling them. If you have the faith, you will be able to move mountains better than Herod can. You know, they understood the mountain that he was pointing to. That that mountain was literally picked up pound by pound of dirt and moved because of the arrogance of Herod. Because he wanted the sun to shine upon the pool as he enters it so it would reflect his glory. You see the, the, the amount of arrogance that he has. But Jesus is telling you, if you have faith, you are greater than Herod. Understand that, that God has such great plans for us. He has such great plans for your life. We can't even imagine the things of heaven, let alone the things that he'll bless us with the rest of our lives. Children and grandchildren. Yes, physical and, and wealth type of possessions. But what he desires above all else is to see his name glorified. To have you become involved in ministry. Involved in the things here of the church and in the ministry throughout this community. So that this community can come to really know Christ. I long for the day where the city of Aurora, it's not just a moniker of the city of lights, but it will actually be the city of light. Let us pray. Our Father, Lord Jesus, I give you thanks for this day. I give you thanks for my brothers and sisters. I give you thanks for being able to come back home and to, to praise and worship your holy name, to, to present your message, Lord God. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, who is not ready for your return, who is not ready to look up to the heavens and, and see you and your holy angels about to open up and split that sky wide open and come back, Lord. If they're not ready, send them down. If there's any that ha has doubts here, Lord, if they struggle with doubts in their life, doubts about you or the scriptures, or doubts about what they're going through, Lord, allow them to come down. We will be here as long as, long as necessary, God. Be with us now, Jesus. In your holy name, amen.